Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everyone. I'm Melissa Studdard, and I'd like to welcome you to Teferit Talk, the blog talk radio show for Teferit, a journal of spiritual literature. Our goal is to promote peace in the individual and in the world through writing. At Teferit Talk, we support this goal by interviewing new and established writers and religious and spiritual leaders. In addition to listening today, you're invited to join our online community at www.teferitjournal.com. That's www.teferitjournal.com. T-I-F-E-R-E-P journal.com where you can read and post writings, interact with other members, and subscribe to the journal. Our interview tonight is with award-winning poet, integrated Kabbalistic healer, and featured to ferret blogger, Jude Rittenhouse. Rittenhouse has received various fiction and poetry awards, and her work has been published widely in literary journals and magazines. In addition to writing, freelance editing, and working with individuals in her holistic practice, Rittenhouse teaches and lectures in a variety of settings, such as conferences, retreats, schools, hospitals, and alternative health centers. She said that in all of her endeavors, she strives to empower others as they explore their unique journeys towards wholeness. Rittenhouse's first collection of poems, Living in Skin, was released as a chapbook in 2009. We'd like to let you know as well that our Blog Talk chat room is currently open and we are accepting callers. The Tafirat call-in number is 347-857-3009. That's 347-857-3009. Thanks so much for joining us tonight. We're excited to bring you what promises to be an enlightening conversation about spirituality and creativity. Hi, Jude. Are you there? I am. How wonderful. How are you doing tonight? Well, it's a warm evening here in Rhode Island. Hot, actually. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm warm. Same in Texas. (laughs) I'm used to that being in Texas, actually. (laughs) Yeah, we have an um, extraordinary one here. Really? Yeah. Hot summer. Uh, Well, it's great to hear your voice again. And um, I'm going to go ahead and start with a question about your poetry. Okay. Um, Okay, great. Um, Gray Jacobic has said of your work, as I was reading the poems in Jude Rittenhouse's Living in Skin, I found myself repeating again and again the first two lines from one of Dickinson's, I'm afraid to own a body, I'm afraid to own a soul. Like Dickinson, Rittenhouse lives on the edge of experience, both extremes, the ecstatic and the horrific, thus her poems are capacious and tenderly human. They are informed by what Genpo Roshi calls big mind. This means varied subjects and tones, coherent informing vision, organic structure, authentic speech. It's the juice I read for. So my question is, um, can you speak for a moment about this all-encompassing approach in your poems and how you perceive the idea of an informing, informing vision in your work and in poetry in general? Well, first of all, I'd like to say how honored I am to have had those words written about my work by Gray Jacobus, who is an extraordinary and fabulous poet. And in fact, she has a poem in the latest issue of To Ferret, um, issue 15. And I highly recommend that people consider purchasing at least that issue, if not a subscription, because oh, it's worth it for Gray's poem alone, in my opinion. Um, oh, as, as for um, my... The idea of an informing vision, 
I, I obviously can't speak for poetry in general, but I can speak for myself. And the words, the very words you use in your question, the words all-encompassing and informing vision, these words feel to me very akin to oneness. And this oneness or unity is core to my vision of reality. In other words, I see people, um, myself included, as individual vehicles or vessels, each of us with unique gifts and capacities, and each of us with our own journeys. And yet, we're so extraordinarily intertwined and interconnected, a part of a sort of web or ocean or tapestry of oneness. And that's just how I see the world. I can't choose to see it in some other way. I guess I could try to see it in some other way, but that wouldn't feel true. That would feel like jettisoning truth, jettisoning, jettisoning one of my gifts. And when I think about this, what I'm talking about, this informing vision, this oneness, I actually I think about the painters Van Gogh and Matisse, whose work really depicted the vibrational and unified nature of reality. Um, and, and I don't know, the, the Van Gogh painting I particularly think of is Starry Night. Do you know the one I'm talking mm. about? Uh, yes, I love that painting. So many people do. And it's there are people who actually see that way, who see things vibrating um, in the way that painting depicts. And so I imagine he had the gift, which also would be in, in many ways a curse at that time, of simply seeing the world that way. Um, okay. So he conveyed his truth, and that's what I try to do. I try to convey the truth of my experience. And tr the truth of one's experience is an enormous thing. Not being able to look away from the truth of one's experience can be an extraordinary gift and also a great curse at times. And I think... Van Gogh was a testament to that, that seeing the world differently from the way other people see it can feel like a curse at times, um, when the majority of the world can't see reality the way it is. One feels on the outside, the truth seers, the truth tellers, it can feel painfully disconnected, um, feeling separate outside, rejected, unreceived. It's the old, actually, this is the oldest punishment known to humans. This, the punishment that was used way back in ancient times was ostracism, putting one outside of the community. And, I thought for a minute you were going to say being an artist. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. No, but, but putting someone outside of community was a way to punish people. And I'm sure to keep the community safe. Um, right. Right. But that, that being on the outside is also what the word sin is about. The word sin actually comes from the Latin sine, which means without. Um, that's the Latin word for without. So think about that. Sin, being separate from all that is. So this yeah. is the human paradox. We feel separate from, yet we're a part of that great oneness. And it's really difficult to hold the awareness that both things are simultaneously true. So to answer your question, this paradoxical truth 
that's what my informing vision is. Okay. Um, and definitely I can see how that uh, manifests in your poetry and in your blogs as well. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so um, I think I want to make sure that we have time for you to read from your work, and I was originally planning on asking you this a little later, but um, I'd like to go ahead and have you read um, some excerpts from your long poem, The Languages of Light. Okay. Um, and that poem, um, just for the people who are listening, that poem runs from pages um, 69 to 76 of our current print issue. So. And again, it, um, I did talk with um, Donna Stein, the publisher of Teferit today, and she said that if if people wanted to purchase a single copy issue of this particular issue, they could do so for um, they could purchase the hard copy for nine dollars, which would include shipping um, by oh, email. And, and there, she made, she was going to try and get a link up um, something up on the com website before tonight's broadcast. Um, so that well, I'm sure after, right, and I'm sure after people hear you read the poem, since you'll be reading um, some excerpts from it, they'll they'll probably want to see the whole thing. I know I would. Right, <laughs> right. That's and that's why I went ahead and got this information. The other thing people can do is email editors at com. And um, she also offered that if people wanted to just purchase a PDF of this particular copy, they could do so for $5. Anyway, so here is um, excerpts, just parts of the poem that you refer to, The Languages of Light. Okay, And it's in sections, so I'll um, I'll say one, two, three, whatever the section is that I'm reading from. Okay, perfect. One. Words alone are tired foot soldiers. Let me speak to you through moon hanging lonely above Orion's circuit. Moon, too, always circling, following Earth like a steadfast consort. Does moon notice Orion's fruitless chase? Those seven sisters racing forever out of his reach, spurning him, needing only the broad arms of each other's light. Poor Orion, his points of light separated by such wide darkness, wide to my eyes, seeing all this from Earth, as she spins her dance of needing sun, though she dare not touch him. Can you hear my kindred longing? Moon, stars, Earth, showing me how it's done, this hunger for what I need but cannot touch. Weary words, unwashed, unshaven, growing hopeless. Though they once believed in their bootless mission, bringing the world by force to peace. But I am a small country, and words are what I have to slog through the quagmire, fields, and shifting sands, the continents between us, the lands which keep our waters from touching, prevent us from flowing together in a bottomless dance. Instead of words, imagine we share a bed on Prince Edward Island at Dalve by the sea. A full moon lifts herself above the Northumberland Straits. She trails her light the way I rise over you, my body emulating moon on mirror waves, rising, falling, undulating, coming 
as close as humans can without words. Afterwards, beyond sun's first light and waking, the thirst remains for what words can never convey. Think of those ravenous families of stars out there with no other arms but their light. Think how sun's rays mate with ocean each clear morning. We have no word for this ritual, this shining. We have only skin, longing to feel a dance like that, filling it from shore to shore. Two. Well, that was... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Sorry. No, please continue. Sorry. Two. Having forgotten this particular dialect of light, we humans speak in glints, glances, glares, aversions learned from parents, teachers, elders whose eyes shaped us, wrote the encyclopedia of our bodies, our lives, with a limited vocabulary, edited and bound by their acceptable terms, mutely, dumbly, they defined us with warm or icy visages that said, yes, more of that obedient silence, that perfect sweet smile. No, make those fists and tears disappear. And now I'm skipping to section eight. Imagine knowing your heart like earth knows its meadows. Like a stargazer lily convinced by its scent, a daisy its petals. For Scythia its yellow, the milkweed pod each feathered seed. Let me know myself like a rose knows red. Section 15. We may rewrite our chasms of silencings sensing cobwebbed, dust-infested libraries inside us, entire wings filled with manuals on multifarious ways of being, lexicons never opened, never even shown to us, ineffable volumes like ocean speaking about deepening, showing us how to bask, how to dance, tangos, waltzes, jitterbugs, even the sacred whirl of a dervish, or primers like sunlight, yes, sun whirling July into August, hot light tiring of itself, diminishing a bit more each day, darkness laying down thicker, heavier blankets, insulating us, swaddling us, waiting for us to find what smolders inside, waiting for us to feed our flames. 16. Even without skin, Polaris, the North Star, reflects in No Bottom Pond, stretching its lanky body on Hidden Valley's belly. These connected essences press against the chest of Bared Breast Mountain, yet not one of these reached out arms, star to mountain to valley to pond, longing to hold someone intimately. Light penetrating water, water caressing valley, valley pressing itself upon upthrusting stone. Don't trust me to tell you the truth here. 
Listen instead to your own body as it speaks, speaks about such things. Notice how your legs even now huddle together like lonely soldiers and your throat reaches down as if to pull the answer from your heart, asking for a response like light, asking water, asking dirt, asking rock. Who are we, all of us together in the cold? 17. Light can be terribly patient. After all it's been through, what's a year or decade or century or eon to a particle of light? Nothing but momentum. Nothing but a journey continuity, transformation, nothing but a dervish dance. Okay, thank you so much. And that was a beautiful reading despite the interruption. <laughs> it was really, really beautiful. Thank you. Um, I- definitely have some questions about this poem and um, the first thing that I was wondering is that you've said um, in the past that this particular poem is near and dear to your heart and Mm -hmm. I was wondering if you would mind elaborating on what it is that sets this poem apart from your others for you. Uh, Well, (laughs) one of the things about this particular poem that makes it near and dear to my heart is I rarely write anything longer than a couple pages. And and this pa- this poem is long, many sections and long. And it kind of blew me away to have that happen, to have that develop. Um, Do you mind if I interject another question here? Sure. Uh, because I, I remember seeing the first section of this poem as um, a poem itself in your earlier chapbook. And so I'm thinking that at some point the first section was its own poem. It was. And then later it grew in. And and so when did you realize, how did you realize that this was actually not a poem but part of a poem, and how did that all develop for you? Well, you know, it's kind of like what I was saying about um, individuality and unity, which is a a topic that just seems to be very up today because I was having a conversation earlier with someone about this, this um, this idea of individuality and community, that, that they are both, again, it's that paradox of two things that seem to be opposite being both of them simultaneously true and necessary to each other. And I think that's true of the, there are actually two sections and possibly even three in this long poem that can also work as standalone individual poems and were actually originally elsewhere on their own or parts of another poem. And when I started this sequence, it was called Words Without Words, um, and I was just kind of drawn into this sense of trying to put words to images that really are larger than words, and it's so hard to put them into words. And after I had completed that sequence um, and let it sit for a while and let it become what it wanted to become and reveal itself to me, um, that's, there was a moment came when I thought, oh, oh, this poem 
belongs in the beginning, and this poem is the ending of the poem, and this fragment is the, the ending ending of the poem. So it kind of fell together like that. And it was a process. It was something that took place over a long period of time. Um, um, do you mind if I ask how long? <laughs> I, really, I would be hard-pressed to answer that because I... I know that the final section, the language of the light can be terribly patient, I know I wrote that section, oh gosh, five to ten years ago. And wow. And the sequence that was uh, words without words, I think that I completed that sequence a couple of years ago. I don't really even remember when I wrote Living in Skin or um, the final section. There's an... Um, the no bottom pond section, mm-hmm. um, even without skin, is what that section was originally called. I don't remember, um, but they just kind of. And this is a, this is one of the challenges of writing is to. Burkhard Nina Holzer wrote a beautiful book on um, the process of journaling. It's called um, the, uh, Between the Journey Between Heaven and Earth, or Between Heaven and Earth. Uh, and it's a journal on the creative process. And um, in it, one of her pieces of advice is you have to be willing to let something sit for a good long while until you get used to its strangeness or its embarrassment. And the way I would put that thought is that you have to be, uh, for me, I have to be willing to go into the creative act having no idea what's going to come of it. And that, to me, is the delight and pleasure and joy of the creative act, is not knowing, being in the total unknown, allowing the swirl of chaos and creation to just come in and fill the form of whatever, um, in the case of writing, it's words on a page, in the case of um, art, and I do some other some other creative things in order, so that when words aren't coming, I'm, I'm using another creative form. Um, because I find that one art form feeds another. Um, yes. So I often have many, many projects going at the same time, and I, and, and I find, oh, wow, it's all of a piece. And then later, much, much later, I, it, it reveals to me what it was that I was just beginning to glimpse, and it actually teaches me what I'm ready to know. That's great, and I think you really touched on something interesting there, too, about um, having to just be patient not only with the creative process but with the work itself and just Mm -hmm. letting it um, sort of gestate for a little while and turn into what it needs to be. Um, And I hadn't really realized the connection before, but um, when you were talking about that, I was thinking of Whitman and Leaves of Grass, as I'm sure many other listeners were, and um, how he worked on that you know, for a lifetime, really. Um, mm-hmm. So I, I just started thinking about that, and um, I heard some echoes of Keats, I felt, um, and I was reminded of Rilke, too. And I was just wondering if any of these writers um, were major influences for you, and well, I, uh, if not, who your influences are. Okay. I suppose of those you've listed, um, Rilke, of course. Um, oh, I mean, he's just... So inspiring, and oh, I just I, letters to a young poet. It was just very, very influential to me. Keats, not particularly. Um, 
and and the people who have influenced me, I guess it was at some point when I was in my late twenties or early thirties, I realized that I had spent my entire life up to that point, and I reading primarily probably ninety eight to ninety nine percent male authors because when I was young, that's what was taught, and I was a voracious reader. And I was also an English major in both high school and college. Um, and for my undergrad degree, I, 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 reading has just been a passion forever. So I had read an awful lot of male writers. <laughs> and I decided, I made a conscious decision to spend a, an equivalent amount of time focused on um, female writers. And um, I have really fulfilled that obligation, and I'm back into really reading a mix now and enjoying the heck out of it. I guess some of my early favorite writers, I, I remember falling in love at age 15 with Muriel uh, Rukeyser's poem, Effort at Speech Between Two People. Do you know that poem? Um, no, but I do know her work in general, and I can tell just from the title how um, connected that is to your subject matter. Yeah, she, well, the, yeah, she just, she really, the longing that is inhuman. She really had had her fingers on the pulse of that. And then, of course, there was Emily Dickinson, um, another. And, and I'm I feel like I've been as much influenced by um, not just poets, but myths, novelists, playwrights, poets, nonfiction, and science fiction writers. Um, so Emily Dickinson, of course, um, Doris Lessing was. Oh, I, I absolutely. I still think she's an amazing, phenomenal writer, and I'm so glad she finally won the Nobel Prize for Literature. <laughs> and I particularly loved her space fiction. I don't know if you've read that, but it was pretty amazing. Fyodor mm-hmm. Dostoevsky, I really went through a Russian phase. Um, <laughs> Ursula Le Guin, who is um, just a gorgeous science fiction writer. Tennessee Williams. James Agee, Heinrich Bull, Virginia Woolf, um, Nikolai Gogol, <laughs> Eugene O'Neill. Oh, I went to a phase where I read everything I could get my hands on by him, and then once I finished all of his writing, everything I could get my hands on about him, I read all of his major biographies. Marge Piercy, a contemporary writer, um, oh, I, yeah. I loved Woman on the Edge of Time. Oh, that that novel just really really moved me, and of course much of her poetry um, also is mm-hmm. is very amazing. Faulkner, I was in you know real Faulkner phase, had one of just entrenched in Faulkner for a while. Oriana Falacci, she is a was she's um, she's dead now was a nonfiction writer that was absolutely stunning, and she actually did write one novel called A Man. Um, that was really powerful. Oh, and Inshallah is another one of her novels. She, she wrote two novels. That's right. Um, Vladimir Nabokov, Rumi, Coleman Barks' translations of Rumi, Richard Feynman, and other authors like that who helped me to understand physics. And then, of course, contemporary poets like Sharon Olds, um, Mary Oliver, Ruth Stone, oh, wonderful woman, Lee Young Lee, Ed Hirsch, Tony Hoagland, and of course Lucille Clifton, William Meredith, and Gwendolyn Brooks, who've all now passed, and just too many to name. Just those are just some of some of them. I think 
my earliest influence, this is kind of bizarre, it was probably Ogden Nash and Edgar Allan <laughs> Poe. That, that, that's a weird combo. But um, well, my, just, my father, who was hardly ever home, when he was home, would occasionally make a very special occasion of reciting, actually really performing for the youngest three or four of us um, from Nash's Custard the Dragon, which is a delightful poem. And my father also loved the Poe poem, Annabelle Lee. And he had two um, soft leather-bound, one soft leather-bound, one hard, hard leather-bound copies of Poe. And I usurped one of them and just consumed every word of it when I was oh, wow. prepubescent, I think. Um, I started writing before kindergarten because I started reading and writing before kindergarten. I was um, had a wonderful older sister who taught me to read and write before I started school. She is an amazing woman. And I think I probably wrote my first poem between the ages of four and six and wrote a really bad science fiction mystery when I was about 11. Um, and, you know... <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that really sounds like a wonderful literary heritage, though. It's so, I mean, and it's can, really compatible with what you were talking about, uh, with the all-encompassing and it's yet eclectic. individual. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, I actually, I want to um, sort of touch on something that you were talking about at the beginning of that, and um, you mentioned how originally you're, you were reading primarily men, and um, then you started reading female authors as well. And I thought that was very lovely the way you said it, that you didn't just go and, you know, go to the other extreme, but you really wanted to continue to read both. Um, but I understand that you're developing a series called Women in Metamorphosis that you'll be offering yes. online as a webinar. And um, Actually, I we're going to do it as a tele-series. A tele- yeah, a tele- tele-series. Yeah. Tele-class. Yeah, tele-class. Okay. That's it. It's going to be a series, but yeah, a series of teleclasses. Um, did you have a specific, or just did you want to well, know about yes, it? Well, yeah, just, you know, I'm wondering when it'll be offered and what it'll cover and how listeners okay. can find the site if they're interested. Okay. Well, we don't have specific dates yet, um, and it will be there will be information about it on the. The Ferret Journal website once we get the details in place. And I would okay. say that, um, I'll, I'll say a little bit about it, but if um, anyone is interested in being on a mailing list to, to have the final details of dates and, and cost and time and all of that, just email me, um, judearit at aol.com. I'll spell that, J-U-D-E-A-R-I-T-T at aol.com. And I'll be happy to email you when the details are pounded out. Um, so, what what I know about it thus far, um, and what inspired what inspired the idea of it, is that we are in such a transitional time right now. Um, everyone I know is going through major transformations, and I think those of us who are in our our middle and later years are feeling like, oh, my gosh, here we are recreating ourselves yet again. And um, and it can feel a little daunting. So I think people need a community 
to support them as they go through that. I'm doing this as Women in Metamorphosis. That will be the title because that's what I know about. Um, I hope a man will do a workshop on men in metamorphosis um, because I think I think people people need people who understand them to help support them through through these times. So it's going to be somewhere between four and six workshops. I'm not sure yet whether it's going to be four or six that take place via teleconference calls. We're going to create um, a very safe and sacred place where we can explore who we've been, who we are, what our lives are asking of us now, including what we have to be willing to release, which is often the hardest part. And we're going to enter into that large territory of unknowns that is always waiting for each of us and open ourselves to whatever it is that is waiting there, calling for our attention, waiting to come through us as the next creation. So in in the process of working together, we'll make sure that we're honoring each other by receiving anything that surfaces in a very conscious and sacred way sharing our stories and our journeys as we go. You know, I think of um, Muriel Rukeyser's lines from the poem Kathakalowitz. What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. And that's really, in a way, what's happening right now. More and more people are telling the truth about their lives, and the world is splitting open. It's transforming. And um, I think right now what I have in the way of a blurb for this series is, I'll, I'll read you what I have in the way of a blurb so far. Oh, great. Thank you. Throughout our lives, our bodies have taught us life's greatest truth over and over again. The nature of life and creation is change. Now, as our bodies, our society, and our lives change once again, we may struggle against the seemingly limited range of choices and opportunities, forgetting that we have each grown amazing wisdom about what is needed. This series of workshops will support us and will support each other as we explore what we know, what we must let go of, what we don't know, and what we long to create in our lives as we transform the second loam of our former selves into brilliant future gardens. So again, if people are interested in this series, they can email me at judearit at aol.com or check the Teferit website, teferitjournal.com website down the road, and they'll be posting details and information as well. Okay, wonderful. And actually that, um, to me, is a really good um, place to sort of um, ask you some questions I had about your non-dual healing practice. Okay. I was wondering if you could explain, I know it goes by several different names, which could be confusing to some people, if you could explain those a little bit and also um, just what the process is, as much as you can. <laughs> okay. Um, the names that that it goes by, my, my actual practice, my healing practice is called Integrated Healing Services, and, and you can find that um, website, integrated, integratedhealingservices.com, to, to learn more and what I might not think to talk about. My primary modality is integrated Kabbalistic healing, and that's also known as non-dual healing. And it's something that is really hard to put into words. And one of the, the, the reason that is is... I. 
many people have heard the explanation about Taoism um, mm-hmm. and, and the way in Taoism that if you can if you can describe the way, it's not the true way. And I know I used to really mull over that phrasing and figure, what? What does that mean? <laughs> and I understand what it means now. Anything that can okay. be put into words is, going, is not going to be what the experience is. With Taoism, that means that any time someone puts into words what, what they experience as the way, it, someone may think they understand it, but they're really not getting it from the words. You can only get it from the experience. And I would say that same thing is true about integrated Kabbalistic healing. You really, any words I might say about it will so under understate. It's such an ineffable thing um, and such an enormous and large and transforming thing. Having said that, I'll try to say a little bit about it. <laughs> And, and just Wonderful. know I was that, you would do that. Yeah. And just know that what I'm what I can put into words is gonna be far less than than what what it is. Um it is a practice that finds the common ground in Kabbalah, Buddhism, physics, um so so many wisdom traditions and there is common ground, and that's where truth is, is in that common ground. It, it uses um, the tree of life, which is a, a symbol, is the easiest way to put it. It's a part of um, Kabbalistic um, literature, the Kabbalistic field. Um, and, it, and it uses awarenesses about the Kabbalistic universes. And that's when we practice integrated Kabbalistic healing, we're using all of that, but we're also, um, the training is an intensive four-year training that is very transformational for those of us who've been through it. You, you really transform over the course, of the course of those four years and become a very different container, uh, develop an ability to receive people in a way that's really quite extraordinary. And in fact, receiving and it is in Kabbalistic awareness is very foundational. And when you think about it, it is a foundational thing about reality. Being in, be, receiving and being received, being in relationship. Relationship is the foundation of everything. It's what's, it's simply what's going on all the time. As physics knows that everything is relational and in relationship and changing constantly because of the relational nature of reality. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, so, that's is there anything that I've left very muddy that it would help to have clarity, further clarity? You know, I can't think of anything, but um, I, I would like to remind people that um, they can call in. So if there's anything that anyone would like clarified, um, they're welcome to call in. And, of course, they're welcome to call in with other questions as well. So if you're listening and, and you have questions, feel free. Um, I, I do have another question to follow up on that, though. As you were talking about it, um, I started thinking about the connection between art and spiritual practice. And um, I was wondering if you think that a spiritual practice is important to an artist's life. And um, also, the flip, do you think artistic creation enhances spiritual practice? It, it, that's an interesting question, particularly because 
it it um it presumes that there's some kind of a separation between art and spirituality or spirituality right. and anything and to me separation is and this is i think an awareness that i really really gained in the integrated Kabbalistic healing training is that separation is a very false thing it's all one thing to me art is a spiritual practice and i think that i didn't even realize for many decades that that was my primary spiritual practice that writing was my primary spiritual practice um Art is a way of looking at the world, trying to see it, trying to understand something about it, and then conveying what we glimpse along the way. Um, to me, writing, writing itself is a journey. And I think I mentioned earlier, I often don't have any idea what I'm going to write about when I begin. The process itself guides me, leads me, informs me, teaches mm-hmm. me. And I can't separate spiritual practice from art or vice versa. Um, to separate those things feels as false as any other separation. Um, they're just... Well, conscious living is a spiritual practice. Okay. Okay. And do you, um, do you have any advice for someone else who might want to bring their life into the kind of balance that you have yours in where... Um, you know, your creativity, your spirituality, and I can tell from reading your blogs and your poems the way you interact with the natural world, with other people, it is so um, cohesive and connected and it's all of the same piece. And um, actually, it it reminds me of something that one of my professors used to say, Marie Howe, um, she talked about her teacher, Stanley Kunitz, who said that in order to write the kinds of poems you want to write, you need to start by becoming the person who would write those poems. <laughs> and oh, that's so, so beautiful. You know, isn't it wonderful? And um, it, it, that quote actually reminds me of you. To me, you are the perfect example of that. And I'm wondering if you have advice for other people who would like to bring their lives into that kind of balance, um, maybe with their art or just in general. Hmm. I, I feel very honored that that you see me as a person like that, <laughs> um, <laughs> that, that I'm living my life. That I mean, I try. We all try, but we also don't always know that we're succeeding. Um, I think that how to, how to do that in one's life, you know, maybe a, a real important beginning point is self-kindness, self-compassion, and that's been a really hard thing for me to learn. Um, because I, I really grew up in a family that was um, extraordinarily critical and judgmental, and and I, I think they don't they don't know that didn't know that um, it wasn't with any intention of harm. It was, if anything, with an intention of protecting. So I had to really I've had to, and I will spend the rest of my life working to learn to be compassionate and kind first to myself in order to be that with others. Um, So so that, I think, is a beginning point. Um, Other things, I know there are other things. Um, hmm. Well, I I think you've actually given a 
pretty thorough answer. <laughs> well, so, you know, the, um, the other pieces are being willing to explore the dark places in oneself, being willing to do, to, to, to make the places that one isn't seeing transparent, because that's where the art comes from, is um, by going, diving in deep and finding what's there and mining it, that's that's where the powerful material comes from. Without that, what you've got is somebody else's stuff, somebody else's version of the world. Learning to come from the inside out instead of the outside in is really, really primary when one wants to live a centered life, when one wants to create art. And, they're, they're, you know, it's it's funny how... Have you you know Natalie Goldberg's rules of writing? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and, and she says that um, those ten or however many rules of writing that they're equally applicable to life in general. I would say the same thing about um, creating art that and and creating creating a life that one can really feel good about or even just bear to lead. It's it all comes from the same place, and, and that place is learning to live in connection with yourself and learning to come from the inside out instead of trying to be what you think the world wants you to be. Okay, okay, that's very helpful. <laughs> um, okay, I wanted to actually ask you about some of the recurring images and patterns in your work. Okay. Um, Obviously, images such as skin, the ocean, water, um, the moon, trees. People, I'm sure, heard this when you were reading the excerpts from your poem. And um, also, I've noticed some image patterns, such as that of the elements, earth, air, fire, water. I'm wondering if it's conscious on your part. Um, I know that you talked about the creative process as being a journey, so it's, I'm thinking it may not even be conscious, but um, if you could talk a little bit about what these images convey for you, either during the creation or after the fact. Um, it's conscious and unconscious, I suppose. Nature just feels like as much a part of my family as my parents, my sister, my brothers, Sometimes nature, and I think when I was small, nature sometimes felt like a safer part of my family. Um, <laughs> trees, trees particularly, I have just such a thing for trees, maples especially. Trees, sky, clouds, air, earth, fire. These, these natural things, even, if, even when I couldn't go out and be in them, even if it was just in my head, they gave me escapes, places to go in my mind when I was little and, and having difficulty being in physical proximity to the energies or the people around me. Um, later, when I learned about Jung and archetypal images and Jung's ideas about the collective unconscious, I began to really recognize that the appeal these things had for me was a universal. It, it's like um, a tuning fork. Um, to to evoke these images is like twanging on a tuning fork and things start to resonate at that same um, vibration because they just they just have this quality so um, so for me it's 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 just what's there it's just what is and it's a, it's very large 
in my experience and in my life. Um, I don't. I hope that answers. Yes, yes, absolutely. And I just, you know, I was thinking um, from reading your poems and your blogs as well that it's um, it, it takes the idea of pathetic fallacy even sort of to a new level where um, human action and thought really isn't just mirrored by nature, but it's actually a part of nature. Like the humans are not entirely even distinguished from the landscape any more than a tree or a squirrel. Um, and so what you're saying actually just makes so much sense in that context. Um, now, you talk also about um, what it means to be human, the journey of being human, as one of the primary subjects um, in your blogs and your poems. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit more um, beyond the, the natural aspect. Hmm. Well, there are a couple of things in here. You know, one thing is that I want to I want to bring say something more about the words pathetic fallacy because those of us in literature that understand literary criticism know what the what that phrase means. Um, but but to people who don't know what the phrase means, it may feel like it has negative or pejorative connotation. Oh, yes, you're right. Yeah. So to clarify for people, what what we're talking about is something that goes beyond anthropomorphism and personification. And in other words, and to me, what we're talking about is simply what is. Um, we're humans. And we're so homocentric, you know. It's not that I'm imbuing nature with human qualities. It's that I can't help but feel and notice and see all of the aliveness and sentience in nature. Um, so that's, you know, just to clarify that a little bit. Um, and and about your question about what it means to be human. Oh, wow. <laughs> and... and <laughs> Being human means that we're in material form, and that in and of and by itself means that we're vulnerable. It means that we're able to experience great joy and also tremendous pain. A year ago, I guess it was a little over a year ago now, um, I almost died after contracting three tick-borne diseases. They just, you know, the, the, the various diseases destroyed my blood, stressed my heart, my kidneys were shutting down, my organs were shutting down. And while I was at death threshold, I had this amazing experience of floating in a timeless black waterless sea, and suspended there with me were the eyes of whales and elephants, ancient wow. eyes that conveyed a divine sadness, a heartbreak even, that humans haven't yet become the stewards of the earth that we're meant to become. You know, we humans, we think we're masters of creation. We're not. We try to control things in this world, and over and over we're shown that we have no control, that everything can disappear in an instant. That's a lesson that I learned so deeply a year ago, and it's a lesson that I feel so keenly these days as I watch so many people struggling with the enormous changes that are happening. Um, so an idea that that keeps and so and so being and being human means being in form being vulnerable to these enormous changes and because we have bodies we have preferences i don't know anyone who doesn't prefer pain uh, comfort over pain do you right no so, um, yeah and I mean, because no. <laughs> yeah we we all want to be comfortable nobody likes pain right and because we have preferences we grow attached to 
um, people, places, things, comfort, things that bring us comfort. We live in a, this society that prefers youth over age, thinness over plumpness, wealth over poverty. So being human means struggling. And because we all struggle, we might also all have immense and enormous compassion for each other. And to me, I think that life's losses are meant to bring us into compassion for, for other people. Things don't always play out that way. But I, I really feel like that's, that's what these enormous transforming times are calling us to do, is to recognize that um, we're all vulnerable to losing everything at any moment. And in fact, a line, and I don't know who said it, that keeps coming to me these days is, in order to gain everything, we must first lose or let go of everything. Mm-hmm. And really, that's what's required of us when we're in material form. Matter constantly changes. And what all the crazy things we humans do to avoid that truth, that's the truth of being human. We're in material form. Loss is a part of things. Gain is a part of loss. This is the way the world works. And so I guess my my life goal and my intention on this journey of being human is to open my heart and release my my negative judgments and criticisms, knowing that these are all ways of trying to protect myself from pain and loss. Okay. And even though it's hard to be open and vulnerable, it's stultifying and brittle and fragile to be closed. It's such a false yeah. sense of protection and safety. And it feels so true to me that in order to gain everything, we must lose everything. And it feels terribly challenging to actually do that letting go. Um, Seeing this, knowing this, how can we not have compassion for each other? Mm -hmm, Absolutely. That is a really amazing answer. And um, I'm noticing that we only have about five minutes left and we have a caller. And I want to ask you one last question. So I'm going to let the caller through and then then we'll wind things down. Okay. Hello? Hello. Hello, are you there? Yes, I am. Hi, this is Diane from Massachusetts. Hi, Diane. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Um, I just wanted to ask Jude about that critical voice which she mentions. Um, mm-hmm. I think many of us suffer that when we try to write. And can she give any suggestions for helping to quiet that critical voice? Huh, I can suggest a marvelous book. Um, it's called, um, oh, I'm blanking on the title. <laughs> okay, so I guess I just have to answer your question because I'm blanking on the title of the book. Um I think that self-kindness is a daily, moment-by-moment practice. And the only way to do it is to just do it, is to notice. To notice every time you say the word should. Mm -hmm. Because should is a judgment word, and it's a subtle one. And everybody I know says, well, when I said should, I didn't really mean anything bad about myself. But the word is if you really let yourself feel your body when when you hear yourself using that word should notice notice how you kind of turn curl inward a little bit because it does happen um, that that word should is a judgment word and it's a subtle and there are so many subtle and small ways that we that we judge ourselves so 
So if you want to get the judgment and the, the, inter- the critic to stop judging your writing, you have to get it to stop in, in your life in general. By the way, I did find the book. The book is Soul Without Shame oh. by Byron Brown. Excellent. Okay. Well, thank okay. you very much. Well, thank you so much, and thanks for calling in. Thank you. Um, Lovely. Okay. So um, the last thing I wanted to ask you is if you have any upcoming events or publications you'd like to announce. Um, before we run out of time. Okay. Well, I, we've already talked about the teleclass, and um, you, you can email me for more information, judearid at aol.com. I want to make sure that people know that if, um, the latest issue of Seferit, issue number 15, that they can. Um, the, the publisher did say that people could buy that individual copy, and that has the long poem, Languages of Light, that I read an excerpt from, and it also has so much marvelous work in it. Um, just contact um, editors at teferritjournal.com to learn more about that. And I'm going to be teaching a writing workshop in New London, Connecticut, on Friday, September 17th at Blissworks Yoga and Healing Arts called Writing Your Way Home to Wholeness. You can email me for further details. Um, or you can check, check the the Blissworks. I think I can't remember whether it's Blissworks.com, but do a Google Google Blissworks Yoga and Healing Arts New London, and you'll find them. And then, of course, my my chapbook Living in Skin is still available. Again, that's something you can email me about if you're interested. Um, I can. I can send copies for uh, $10 would include the shipping cost, or I actually um, would be willing to sell it as a PDF file. Um, so if you're interested, just email me and we can figure that out. And okay, thanks. Okay, thank you so much. And um, I have to say, I, I didn't even get to half of what I wanted to ask you, so maybe in the future sometime you can come back and we can talk some more. It's been um, such a pleasure. Thank you so yes. much. And such an honor yes. to be in this honorable company. Julia Cameron, uh, the first interview, and I know you yes. have some amazing people coming up. I hope you'll tell people more about who's coming. Okay. Thank you so much. Night. Okay, so I'd just like to thank those of you who are listening in tonight and those of you who are listening after the fact as well. Our next interview will be with Edward Hirsch, poet, professor, editor, and Guggenheim Foundation president at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on October 14th. As well, Teferit's most recent print issue is just out and available for order at our website, www.tif. ERETJournal.com. A year subscription to Seferit is just $18 and includes six issues, two print and four digital. The site's also a great place for readers and listeners to post their own poetry since our editors feature one new poem each day from those who post. Thanks so much for being with us tonight. We hope you'll join us again in October. <laughs>